2: There's this moment that I keep thinking about. It was on March 31st at the White House. The coronavirus task force was holding their briefing.
3: Thank you, Mr. President. Um, if I can have the first slide, please.
2: Dr. Deborah Burks was standing at the podium, and behind her, there were these charts. Charts that showed two curves. One was a steep bell curve in dark blue, and she called that a mountain. I think you know from that large blue mountain that you can see behind me. And I just want to
3: thank the five or six international and and domestic modelers from Harvard, from Columbia, from Northeastern, from Imperial, who helped us
2: tremendously. This was the first time the White House had showed the public models. Statistical projections of what COVID-19 could do if left unchecked. That was the mountain. Some one to two million deaths in the U.S., versus what might potentially happen if Americans took some measures to slow the virus's spread. That was the smaller curve, a more gradual hill. It was their models that created the ability to see what these mitigations could do,
3: how steeply they could depress the curve.
1: March 31st, that was like four or five years ago, right? So I think I still basically remember it.
2: This is Jordan Ellenberg, a mathematician and professor at the University of Wisconsin.
1: That was probably the first moment when you heard the government of the United States really talking in this language to the people of the country as a way to think about what we can say about what's to come.
2: Dr. Burks and the pandemic task force had presented two scenarios, a worst case and a better case. But to predict anything in between, that's when the real work starts.
1: What the models are missing is that it's very hard to model human behavior. Even in aggregate, it's pretty hard to capture what people are going to do via some kind of differential equation or some kind of fancy network model or whatever it may be. So a lot of what happens over the weeks and months to come depends on how people respond to the epidemic in their own community and how people respond to uh, the mandates given to them by their government.
2: Ever since Dr. Burks presented these charts to the American public, they seem to be everywhere. Not just in the media, as we try to wrap our heads around when this will be over and how bad it will be. But in the highest levels of government, as they make policy decisions that are bringing economies to a halt, upending lives and costing jobs. So today on the show, we explore how these models work, what they're good at showing us and how they can impact your behavior and mine. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is What Next TBD? A show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stay with us.
3: This episode is brought to you by Discover. This podcast is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you're driving, cooking, or doing laundry, Progressive knows the podcasts you listen to go best when they're bundled with another activity. Much like how their Progressive home and auto policies go best when they're bundled. Having these two policies together makes taking care of your insurance easier. And it could help you save, too. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. That's a whole lot of savings and protection for your favorite podcast listening activities, like going on a road trip, cooking dinner, or even hitting the home gym. Yep, your home and your car are even easier to protect when you bundle your insurance together. Find your perfect combo. Get a home and car insurance quote at progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. National average 12 month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary.
1: Anatomy of an ad.
0: Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect.
1: Define an opportunity.
0: Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now.
1: Identify a problem.
0: Creating an audio ad is time consuming.
1: Offer a solution.
0: Utilize cutting edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from
2: audiostack.ai. When you model how a disease might spread, you start with a few seemingly simple inputs the infection rate, the fatality rate, the number of people who might be susceptible. But of course there are so many other factors time community action all the sorts of things that governments want to analyze. So why do we need these things in the first place? You know what is the utility of having a model or several models when we're faced with a pandemic?
1: Well, at some very basic level, of course, we want to know what's going to happen. But I want to emphasize that the easiest question to answer, and this is true in medicine, it's true in physics, it's true in any quantitative or scientific context, is what's gonna happen if nothing changes, if everything goes along exactly how it has been going? Well, we have some data about what happens when everything goes along without us taking serious suppression effects, and we can use that data to extrapolate and see what would happen in the future.
2: Jordan says that modeling how the virus spreads without containment measures in place was a crucial first step in mobilizing governments to take action. A team from Imperial College in the UK led that effort.
1: The Imperial College model was the first one to get really widespread public uptake, I think partly because it was taken seriously by the British government. And those numbers were extremely scary. What they were modeling is what happens with this disease without large scale, serious attempts to suppress. And it's almost hard to remember now, but if you go back one month, people were still saying, it's just just gonna pass. Like I was on a plane like less than a month ago, like lots of people were, the airports were full, schools were open. And I think people were asking, are we gonna need to take any kind of serious measures? And so I think that model was an attempt to track what would happen if things go on as they have been.
2: What they predicted was as many as 510,000 deaths in the U.K. and 2.2 million in the U.S. And this model has been credited with encouraging governments of both countries to enact much stronger measures in response, which led the modeling team to a more complicated question.
1: They started to say, well, what happens under various models of suppression? And that's a lot harder to do because then you're not trying to to say, let's extrapolate from data we've already seen. They're saying, let's hypothesize some change that we undertake and what will be the result. That's an inherently harder problem. You know, when you try to predict what a virus is gonna do, we can kind of learn pretty quickly how a virus behaves. When you're trying to predict what people are gonna do, that's a lot harder than a differential equation.
2: Can you give me a sense of the main models that get talked about? You mentioned the Imperial College, uh, what these models are and how they differ.
1: The model from Imperial College, what they are doing, it's very traditional. It's what's called sort of a differential equation model. Basically, what they're doing is saying at any given moment, we make our best estimate as to how many people are infected with this virus, how many people are recovered and thus we think have at least short-term immunity, although even that we don't really know, right? And that's an important parameter of the model too. And then how many people are still susceptible, right? That's the reservoir from which the virus draws, people who are still walking around ready to be infected by the disease. And then it kind of goes day by day, okay, we predict each day, each infected person will infect an average of so many more people out of the people who are still susceptible. Also, each day, some percentage of the people who are infected will recover and sort of move into the bucket of people who are recovered. And by doing this, sort of, you can estimate, given the data today, what can we predict about tomorrow? Now, plug it in again. Given the data tomorrow, what can we predict about what it's going to look like the day after tomorrow?
2: And then we've got this model from Seattle, from the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation. What's their approach?
1: So their approach is totally different because they're not trying to model the spread of the disease step by step. They're saying, let's look at one place where we've already seen the disease in some sense run its course under interventions, which is China, sort of look at what the shape of the curve looks like and then posit that the curve of deaths is gonna go up and go down in a certain shape. Might be higher, might be lower, might shift to the left, might shift to the right, but the shape, they say, let's hypothesis that that's the shape. And then they do what's called curve fitting, They take the data that we've already seen and say, of all the possible curves of roughly that shape, which one fits the existing data best? And then they hypothesize that that's what's going to happen in the future.
2: Last week, that model projected some 94,000 deaths in the U.S. by late summer. And now we've got a new estimate of roughly 60,000 deaths by August. What's your reaction to that kind of change?
1: This is so important for people to keep in mind. The Seattle group is doing a very good job of putting very wide ranges around their numbers. But, you know, typically when they say, okay, in this state, we think we're going to see 2,000 deaths, they'll also give you a range. Well, maybe it's 300, maybe it's 10,000. And so we should feel good about those numbers going down. We should also recognize that they have been telling us from the beginning that it's really not possible to make an estimate down to the single person or the, or 10 people or 100 people or probably even 1,000 people, given the smallness of the data we have right now. You know, in some sense we've been conditioned by the age of big data to think of machine learning predictions as really, really good. This is not big data we're talking about. This is extremely small data. That's what we have to work with.
2: When you talk about the specificity of those predictions, I think one thing people at home are watching is when's the peak? When's the worst part? And and that model has sometimes given us actual dates. And I wonder, is that is that maybe something we're fixating on too much?
1: Yeah, you're wondering exactly the right thing. Because one thing I wish they would do is when they re- reported the peak, their estimated peak, that they would give the same kind of large error range. Because the uncertainty of the parameters in their model means that Their estimate for when infections are going to peak is no more certain than their estimates for the total number of deaths or the total number of cases. And I worry that when they say, "Okay, in this state, it's going to be April 22nd and this other state is going to be May 1st. People are like putting that in their calendars. That's a mistake. That's a mistake. I think those should be thought of as saying, "Okay, we're saying it's April. It's not going to be June.
2: Do you think there's a point in which a model can tell us, all right, it's safe to go back to work and you can stop social distancing now?
1: So that brings us to a really interesting question, which is that and another critique that I think is quite valid that has been made about the modeling is um, they are really focusing on what happens in the next three or four months. Like, let's say that we sort of maintain some level of suppression, whether this level or a different level, uh, from now through June or July or even August, which I think is what the Imperial group used. you also going to ask what happens after that. We're we're very likely not going to have a vaccine by then. And nobody seems to think that's a realistic possibility, Uh, which means that when we do open things up, we're going to be back to that model where the virus is able to move unimpeded. And then maybe we see a peak that's just as bad as the unimpeded peak, except later instead of sooner. So the point of all this is that later is much better than sooner because, Ideally, what we're doing right now with all this pain we're undergoing is to buy us time. It's to buy hospitals time to brace themselves and build up capacity. It's to buy doctors time to sort of test like a million different potential treatments to understand what can get people out of the ICU sooner or prevent them from having to go into the ICU in the first place. Um, And it's to buy us time to develop a robust system of wide scale testing that allows us to stamp out localized outbreaks before they get big.
2: There are signs, very, very early signs, that these efforts to buy time are working. And the disease models have reflected this change, predicting much lower mortality rates. But if someone who looks at this and says, well, I don't know, they said it was going to be bad, but now the model looks better. So maybe this isn't as big a deal as the experts or the government was saying.
1: Well, I do think that's a real danger. And I actually do think you saw a little bit of messaging that sounded like that coming out of the White House last week. And I think to their credit, they sort of quickly backpedaled from that and made it clear that what is happening when we see those numbers go down and when we see the direst of those projections start to fade away. That is because of what we're doing. So When you see those numbers from Imperial go from 2 million down to 60,000, that's not those researchers saying, whoopsie, we messed up. That's the researchers saying, good job, conditions have changed. And when conditions change, the model has to change with it.
2: You know, I think a lot of us who did not go on to study graduate level math think of it as not a living thing. Absolutely. I mean, look, what I always say about math is that
1: it's not some kind of foreign thing that a computer invented. It's us. It's our human way of thinking, just made a little bit more formal. So you, as a person, are looking at the news and looking at what's happening in New York and looking at what's happening in Louisiana. You're looking at both the bad things and the good things, and you're constantly revising your estimation about what's happening with this disease in different directions, right? If you do that with a differential equation, or you do that by fitting a curve to some set of points that you have in your computer, um, you are actually doing the same. Thing, the same mental process, just in a more formal way, but it's not fundamentally different from the way that anybody would think about the disease. All of us are constantly revising our sense of what is to come and our sense of how what is to come depends on the decisions that we make.
2: What would you say to the layperson who is trying to understand what role this model should play in their life or their understanding of a virus?
1: This is all about aggregates. So a good example, I think, is this whole controversy over mask wearing. I think at first a lot of people were like, well, that's not going to reliably keep me from getting this disease if I'm out in public. So what's the point? And it's true that that's not going to reliably keep you from getting the disease. That's a fact. No one disputes that, especially if your mask is sort of not a super fancy N95 mask that we should be leaving for healthcare providers anyway. But if you think in the aggregate, maybe wearing that mask is going to reduce by... 20%, 30%, 50%, who knows the average number of people that you, if you happen to unknowingly be infected, are going to transmit the virus to. So I think what math would ask people to do is, you know, we're very individualistic in this country, and in many ways that's good, but at the moment we kind of have to think of ourselves as each of us as one part of a very large average, and how are we gonna change aggregate behavior in a way that overall, reduces the total amount of transmission, even if it doesn't affect our own personal health that much.
2: Jordan Ellenberg, thank you so much.
1: Thanks for having me on.
2: Jordan Ellenberg is a math professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. All right, that's our show for today. What Next TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks and hosted by me, Lizzie O'Leary. And it's part of the larger What Next family. TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And I cannot recommend enough that you go back and play Monday's episode of What Next. It's about COVID-19 on Rikers Island, and it's essential listening. What Next will be back on Monday. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week.